So thank you, Dr. Patel, for joining us. You may recall I was your patient at MUSC in March of 2021, um, where you gave me a necessary spinal fusion from occiput to C3 following yeah. a diagnosis of cer cranial cervical instability. And that surgery has really changed my health and my life for the better. And I'm writing a book about some of the things that helped me regain my life and my balance again. So my first request is to tell me about your experience with EDS patients and the complexities that we typically face. Uh, EDS is a, a complex disorder, probably not as well understood as it should be becoming more and more recognized. Um, you know, Erlos and Danlos described this syndrome of uh, collagen or connective tissue disorder many decades ago. And the criteria for who has EDS or uh, who doesn't have also evolved quite a bit. We now know that there are 14 different types of EDS and probably the largest, most common form of EDS which is still under-recognized is what we call hypermobile EDS or type three EDS. While we know that there are uh, familial tendencies with it and therefore there's probably a genetic inheritance of this disorder, that genetic inheritance still remains to be defined and we're working on that. Since it involves a collagen, which is a base protein from which all our body is built, every organ, tendons, muscles, bones, skin, blood vessels use collagen. You can imagine that if you have something different about the collagen as type three EDS patients have or hypermobile EDS have, that the systemic manifestations can be all very, very different in different patients and involving a lot of different sy symptoms. My engagement with treating EDS patients became is because of their spinal manifestations. Um, and, and, and by that, I mean the laxity of the ligaments affects the function of the spine and, and therefore affects the nervous system, the spinal cord. And so everywhere from your head to your tail, the joints that put the spine together all can be loose and, and the word instability is used. In your case, it was a Craniocervical instability where the head connects to the, to the spine, you get a laxity of those ligaments and you get a hypermobility of that joint. And that leads to symptoms of pain and, and strain on your muscles. But more importantly, it affects the spinal cord within the craniocervical junction and the neurological manifestations from that. When I see these patients, it's very clear that their spine symptoms are not the only ones uh, that many patients suffer from. They have different organ system problems, whether it's cardiovascular with a very common thing that happens, they get POTS, or it can be GI symptoms from hypomobility or uh, hypofunction of the gut or the stomach, gastric emptying problems to even mast cell disorder. A lot of these patients have dysfunction of one of the immune cells, which is mast cell and it's called mast cell activation syndrome. How all these things are linked with each other, it's not known and I'm sure once we figure out the genetic code or the gene defect, if you will, or, or difference that we'll be able to better understand the pathophysiology of all these organ systems. 
It's a very complex set of disorders that's not going to be managed by one specialist or another. It's going to require the engagement of physical therapists, neurosurgeons, orthopedic surgeons, cardiologists, gastroenterologists, immunologists, rheumatologists, et cetera, et cetera, who come together to hopefully early diagnose these patients, but co-manage these patients uh, uh, for a more functional life. Thank you for that. Um, I know that I've seen, you know, what I would describe as maybe a, like a remission of a lot of my symptoms following my surgery. Is that typical? Uh, you know, like is, is solving this problem in the neck something that, that is, helps long-term prognosis? What do you see? Well, uh, fixing the neck problem doesn't fix the overall EDS problem, right? right. So the, the neck problem is one manifestation of a complex uh, of manifestations. And it's so variable between different patients. For some of them, the craniocervical instability is the main symptom presentation and the brain main source of impairment. And so when you fix that, it does make them functional again, but it doesn't remove the fact that they have EDS and that other systems and organ systems could, could be affected in the future. Oftentimes, <clears throat> one, one system or one organ system not working well amplifies symptoms from another. As an example, you can have a patient with craniocervical instability and EDS who also has mast cell activating syndrome. And the mast cell activating syndrome amplifies their uh, craniocervical or cervical medullary uh, nervous system dysfunction. And so when you fix one, it may not fix the overall thing. And so they, the patients will come in saying that they've had a regression and it's not a regret. Their, their fusion's done, their craniocervical junction's fixed, but they may have a regression because they have spinal instability in the rest of the spine, or they may have tethered cord, or they may have more pot symptoms, or they may have mast cell activation syndrome. So I think the genetic code that's causing this is affecting a lot of organ systems and when you remove one or you fix one thing you're not fixing the overall and they can have a regression uh, and and that's why i said this needs a you know continued evaluation of the spine if there's regression but also continued evaluation by cardiologists and rheumatologists and gi doctors to make sure the other organ systems are still uh, doing well and one thing can compound another, right? So. So you had described to me before when I saw you that um, cranial cervical instability as a result of hypermobility was, was a lot about holding that 20 or 30 pound pumpkin on the top of your spine and that things get, get wiggly and that causes a lot of like neurological symptoms. So how would a person know to come see a neurosurgeon like you who understands EDS, what symptoms might they look for? Uh, it's a good question. And I think there's a reason why the average time to diagnosis of EDS is about 14 years by certain publications. And uh, not every neck pain is from hypermobility because if you just look at the diagnosis of neck pain, then the more common reason for neck pain is just age-related changes that go on in the disc and facets. These patients go through the standard of care, which is evaluation by therapists or spine neurosurgeon or orthopedic or whatever. 
and they may or may not find a problem and uh, treat the problem that they usually treat with for degenerative disc disorders or spinal disorders and sometimes there are success but a lot of times there are failures but i think failure of improvement with standard of care is one way that leads to it and i think educating the public but more importantly educating primary care physicians and educating even specialists as you know i'm i'm one of very few spine neurosurgeons who treats EDS, who believes in it, but I have colleagues right here within my own department that don't see these patients and would not recognize it because at least they are familiar with my work. And so they would probably refer the patient quickly to me to see if the patient is suffering from instability uh, and whether they have EDS clinically. But that still remains, there's a lot of pieces of this that need to be worked out. And I think folks like you publish about it from the, from the patient's perspective, but also as important folks like me and others who work on this continue to publish clinical papers on this. The dissemination of that knowledge will be important. And then on the basic science level, folks like in the Norris lab here, which is Chip Norris, who works on the genetics of this disorder, all that's gonna ultimately lead to better recognition, early recognition, et cetera. Uh, yeah, and until everybody knows it. Today, we know that if a patient is walking on the street in his 60s falls to the roadside and has complained of horrible chest pain, I think 99.9% of people, patients, EMS people, or providers know that, oh, oops, I wonder if this is a heart attack. We didn't know that in the days bygone centuries ago. So like that, I think this is going to come to recognition. But unlike the heart attack example I gave you, EDS has so many manifestations, not just craniocervical instability, but also back issues and cardiac issues and GI issues that it's gonna require the dissemination of knowledge to a variety of different specialists and that's gonna take time. So and, 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 and literally we're gonna to need to have even primary care physicians trained to, to listen carefully to these patients and to make sure that they have in their list of differentials for, for example, neck pain, that they consider this and getting a good history. Like many times I'll ask a EDS, potentially hypermobile patient, just simple family history. You know, how is grandma? How's your mother? How are your siblings? Uh, what about your own children? Are they hypermobile? Did you have hypermobile joints as a kid, et cetera, et cetera. And I think once that's infused into the evaluation, the basic evaluation of these patients, I think we'll be able to, but those things take a while. <laughs> Not yeah. done overnight. I was gonna say, all of this takes patience. Uh, I, I, I like to say it, it takes becoming a patient patient to, to get through this disease. Um, Absolutely. So there seems to be kind of an uptick in the number of EDS patients. I know that you had mentioned to me that you see something like 10 or 15 new EDS patients every week. What, what do you think that is from? Is that from better awareness, knowledge sharing, diagnostic tools? Tell me about what you think is going on there. I think uh, all of the above, uh, I think our, our 
first of all, the patient's own recognition that something's wrong because of a lot of the media availability of uh, patients talking to patients about this has been very helpful and uh, alerting. Um, better diagnostics, definitely, you know, as an example, you know, the ability to image the spine in an upright position when most of these patients have symptoms has been very useful. So having an upright MRI with dynamic pictures of, of their spine moving their head back and forth can give us more knowledge and better way to evaluate these patients. So diagnostics is also very important. I think technology in terms of the surgery has also improved quite a bit over the recent years and our recognition of what will work and what won't work to, to stabilize their spine has been very, very useful. I see 10 to 15 and it's quite overwhelming for me alone because um, you know, I don't think the incidence has increased. I think the recognition has increased. In fact, uh, there are now epidemiologic papers that show that maybe one in 500, and I saw a daring statistic that maybe even up to one in 200 patients, people may have some form of hypermobility uh, in their spine or in their body or their joints. And so I think, I think with all this, um, statistical information and, and knowledge and better diagnostics uh, and dissemination of knowledge, we're going to see more and more patients given this diagnosis and appropriately treated. That's, that's great news. Um, can you talk at all about what MUSC and you and Dr. Norris and the, the patient registry lab are doing um, to try to tackle the challenge of EDS? Yeah, I mean, I think um, uh, we've made some great progress. I'm not able to divulge all the details because the paper is being written, but the Norris lab, Chip Norris runs a lab in regenerative medicine and took on the project of realizing through one of his own lab students who had EDS uh, to uh, Courtney Gensmer who was my patient and she challenged him that, look, this could be familiar. And so they did a genetic study on uh, a family where hypermobility was very common. And uh, I think there are some very um, hopeful results from that study. And the intent was to find that enzyme or that gene that may be off in these patients or not working right or whatever it is that they want to uh, they've, they've, they've nailed it, narrowed it down. And the huge task now moving forward is that identifying a gene or an enzyme is not enough on its own, but we really need to know what is this doing in the patients themselves? What, wh how is this specific gene or enzyme that they found common to these patients affecting their ligaments and affecting the cardiovascular system or affecting their mast cells? So we have a better understanding of the pathophysiology. Not only that, but once you've identified a potential gene, then you can do a lot more animal studies and in, in trying to understand the manifestations. And, and on the other side, once you have a gene, you can do an early diagnosis where if a patient is not responding to... Um, 
standard treatments for, for example, neck pain or spinal symptoms that having a gene test would be helpful. And in addition to that, having a gene in the future, uh, you can tell a parent who has hypermobility that, that, you know, they have the gene and, and you can prepare them and their children for earlier diagnosis and perhaps even intervention and sort of prevention of, of uh, symptom manifestation. So there are many, many uh, things. And then on the therapeutic side, once you have a gene and you've recognized a specific enzyme or a specific set of enzymes, you can then develop more therapeutic things, whether it's drugs or, or um, different types of physical therapy, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that the Norris Lab has taken a, a huge task and they've been very successful at, at uh, doing this study and created this registry of patients so that they can uh, uh, confirm the, the gene uh, with a larger population in the registry. In fact, uh, I've heard, uh, and I know it's true, they have the largest HEDS registry in the world. Uh, so it's a good thing. And all out of one lab and out of the interest of myself and the patient that I treated to really push these folks to uh, get to an answer. Of course, it needs resources, a lot of money. When I say resources, we talk about money. And... Um, you know, bringing it to the recognition of uh, funding sources like the NIH, where uh, correctly so, they're going to focus on cancer and heart disease, which and brain strokes. But this uh, has to be recognized by the NIH too that it's a very important area to study because it affects a lot of people and and their lives. And in fact, it's a huge burden because these patients with EDS, many can't work. They have to go through expensive diagnostics and treatments. So it's a huge financial burden. So, so hopefully uh, the Norris lab is going to continue to survive and, and, and build and grow. And, and uh, the intent is eventually to build a EDS institute where everything from basic science work like this to diagnostics to bringing all these specialists under one roof to to answer the clinical and basic science questions. In a, in a way to do the multi-systemic approach and to help advocate for the patients and get get care in, a, in an environment that understands all the complexities. That's really wonderful news. I'm very excited about that. Um, so you've mentioned to me the the lack of training you know that just someone as young as yourself got in medical school um for for eds can you can you share about that yeah it's funny is that um, um back in medical school 35 years ago eds was something i just memorized as a collagen disorder and i got that question right and that was the end of that and it was taught to be a very rare collagen disorder, just like Marfan's and a number of other collagen disorders. And I thought to myself then, I said, well, this is rare. I'll never see it, but I got the question right. Collagen disorders, EDS, yes. Marfan's, yes. And that was the end. So it was a... Uh, um, it's okay. Do you still with I am. I am. Yeah. Sorry about that. It's okay. So it was uh, not very well known then. 
um, and not recognized to be as common as it is today. I'm not an EDS expert. There's no such thing as, oh, you go to med school and then you do a residency in EDS management. As I told you, EDS manifests itself in a lot of different organ systems. Nor is there in neurosurgery training, which I did a special rotation during your seven years of training saying, okay, this month you're gonna see EDS patients. That doesn't exist because, so how did I become the so-called expert People call me the expert, but it's not that. I think it's uh, my personal experience in, in practice in medicine has been that I always don't ignore, but put on a shelf people who come in with symptoms I don't understand that sound real. And when you start gathering more than five or 10 of these patients with similar symptoms, nothing else seems to be working out. You, you pull those off the shelf and you say, there's something common about these people. They're not crazy and they're having common symptoms. And then you start talking to colleagues and one has to be humble enough in medicine, especially to call a colleague and say, hey, Fraser Henderson, you know, I'm seeing these patients and I know you've been talking a little bit about it before. What do you think? And you learn and you learn quickly what they know, but you also learn what they don't know and where the questions need to be what are the questions we need to ask about these patients? And slowly out of that interest, you start becoming the expert. People say, well, go to Sunil Patel because he'll treat you. No, he'll listen to you, okay? He'll listen to you and, and what I know I'll tell them, what I don't know I'll tell them. And, and I think by doing that, you're adding to the knowledge of this, the clinical manifestations of this thing. You're sharing it with colleagues who are also seeing similar patients. And eventually you're publishing information that others can read about it and, and do that. I'm an academic neurosurgeon and what academic physicians do. Yeah, we're good at treating regular garden variety stuff, just like anybody else, but we're academic because we're questioning the unknowns. And that comes from patient. A very uh, sage advice was given to me by my mentor, Dr. Perot who was taught him by Dr. Wilder Penfield in Montreal in the 1940s. And Dr. Penfield was asked the question by his trainees, what research should I do? And Dr. Penfield was quite puzzled by that question. He said, wow, that's not a question for me. That's a question to be asked of the patient. Ask the patient what research to do. And so I find myself in that position that after a couple of years of training, I had a lot of questions that came to me from patients. Why did I get this stroke? Why did I get this bleed? Why did my disc herniate? Why do I feel so much pain in my neck? Yet you say the discs look fine. Why does my head feel wobbly? And so I think once we start listening to the, and, and there's a tendency that we as physicians, when, when we don't know the answers, we have two things to do with that question by the patient. We can say, I don't know, I can't treat you, goodbye. Or we can say, I don't know, but this is quite curious. I don't have an answer right now, but let me think about this. Let me call a few people. Let me try to sort it out if I can. And I think I fall a little bit in that category uh, it's a lot of work, 
because you carry the burden of the agony of the patient in your heart, in your mind. And that's just one patient. You have a hundred of these patients. You can imagine you're not sleeping at night anymore. Yeah. But through that, we can find answers. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why they call it the practice. Yeah, desperately seeking solutions. So what have you learned from your EDS patients? Um, In terms of what? I mean, I've learned a lot. I, I know that you know you've you've told me before that you learned about their frustration and that you learned about their ability to to use the community of one another to to try to help each other. Um, yeah, absolutely. I've learned the power of media for sure. I mean, a lot of these patients have talked to other patients with similar symptoms, and thank God for media. You know, if there's lots of negatives and positives about the freedom of media as we have it today, the internet as we call it. But I think one positive thing that happens with this EDS thing is that they talk to each other. Mm -hmm. Now, sometimes it's a little frustrating because patients talking to each other can brew in their mind things that are not true, which they didn't know. And so they come to you with preconceived ideas about what they have or they do not have. And it's hard to delete a lot of that or unravel it and say, no, it's not exactly this, it's that, based on what I know. So I think media has been very helpful and I've found the EDS populations very powerful, very smart people who communicate very well with each other and bring the right questions to us. I think what I've learned about EDS also is that um, they are very frustrated because it they they, <laughs> they manifest very well the shortcomings of medicine today, right? Medicine has come a long ways from the day of the guy on a horseback who came to your house with a little black bag with a stethoscope and poured some elixir down you and said, call me in the morning. Medicine's come a long ways. I mean, we are successfully able to treat so many diseases, but we're still not enough we're not sufficient to help patients. And so what EDS patients told me uh, or, or what EDS itself is teaching me is that, okay, my job's not done, you know, and there's a lot more to uh, learning about these diseases. And it's interesting because EDS affects so many organ system, sim systems. As a neurosurgeon, I'm learning so much about the other systems, right? I'm not a cardiologist, but I think I have a good idea on what postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome is. I'm not a rheumatologist or immunologist, and mast cell was just another paragraph in med school. But I'm learning through this mast cell activation uh, syndrome that they have uh, more about mast cells and what are mast cells and what do they do in the human body and that sort of stuff. So I think that's been very helpful. I like to learn a lot. And... I tell my trainees all the time, don't ever go to bed if you can't think of something new you've learned that day. If you haven't, get up, open the computer, open a textbook and read something, ask something. And when you've learned a new fact, then you go to bed. But the point there is that EDS patients have allowed me to open up things and learn more about things that I wouldn't have done without 
seeing my first EDS patient. And that's satisfying. And through that knowledge, I'm able to help them, but also help educate surgeons. So, so what other kinds of things can someone like myself or another patient do, you know, with, with the internet, with the community of people, what can we do to, to help you and, and your cause? Or, or what can we do to help raise awareness or raise funds? Uh, yeah, raising funds would be a, a great thing for us. I think linking up with uh, the Norris Lab where the very basic work is being done would be very helpful to us. Um, you know, creating links that uh, are filled with content material that's been vetted by people like myself or Henderson or Chip Norris for basic knowledge or cardiologists who treat POTS, you know, gives patients a good central repository of that information. Uh, patients are also, also well-connected with others who can donate to this kind of work. It's not well-organized right now. A lot of us are so busy in the provider end or the research end that we're just doing what we do. We don't have time to organize uh, in a proper way how to raise money. I don't know how to raise money. I know I need it. I know Norris Lab desperately needs more money to begin to answer so many of the questions we have. And I think the power of media is strong enough that if we have people with your talents we can write about it, we can put it all together, we can create websites where folks can go to one repository of all the providers that help with this, all the research labs that work with this and help to organize the content material, whether it's clinical or information we know or a directive of here's the one place where you can read up on papers that have ever been written on EDS. So many different things that you can do as a community to not just help yourselves, but help the future. Well, that's what I'm trying to do with the book is to bring together, you know, here's here's not only my story, but here's what helped me, here's, here's what didn't help me. And, you know, here are the lessons that I've learned and some great people that have helped me along the way. I know that you're completely overwhelmed. I'm grateful for your time. Um, I know we need like two or three or four of you and several of Jared and Amanda and all of the nurses that help you on your team. And um, I'm so grateful to um, Dr. Norris and Courtney who participated in this process and look forward to hearing their research news and sharing it. And uh, again, thank you so much for all you do. And you know, I, I'm grateful to you as a hero who's helped me get my life back together. And uh, I hope you'll stay well, stay motivated, stay curious. I will. Thank you very much.